new CBS Monday. Federal agents! Here's where we can see them. NCIS Hawaii is back. About to set it up. New criminals to catch. Armed robbery, aggravated assault, murder. And new investigations to be solved. These guys were good, but even masters make mistakes. Vanessa Lachey and featuring LL Cool J. Violent Island, you got here. Welcome to paradise. A new NCIS Hawaii, Monday, 10, 9 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I like an intro. That's something that you need to figure out. Little baby intro. Welcome to Heard It, Heard It on the Sidelines. I'm not biased, but this is your intro. Intro. You recorded that, right? Yeah, All right. I actually did. Send it, that's it. We got you. Huh. It's not exactly what I had in mind when Keely and Chris told me they were going to gift me an intro, but all right then. Welcome to the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle podcast family presented by, insert your sponsor name here. That could be you. Make it happen. Next week. Let's do it. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratling, setting off on my own like a prodigal son, taking my podcast inheritance and going to live the lavish life while the rest of the USCfootball.com family... Stays home to take care of the farm. Appreciate it, guys. The Heard on the Sideline podcast is actually an offshoot of one of our segments on the Family Feud podcast by the same name, so you may recognize that segment if you're an avid listener. In that segment, Keely and I attempt to give you kind of a glimpse behind the scenes on game day with some of the interesting things we see and hear from the sidelines when we're shooting video and photos that you know probably aren't being shown on the television broadcast. So in that same vein, I'm hoping this podcast will have a bit of that same feel. We're going to try to have a guest or two each week to discuss what's going on at USC, but we also want to pull back the curtain a little bit to look at some of the things that may go unnoticed if you flip on a game on Saturday, whether it's basketball or baseball or football, and maybe you haven't been following along intently throughout the week. So we're going to look at the challenges, the work, the efforts, the success and triumphs that take place behind the scenes. Today, we're diving into USC basketball. We're going to be talking with USC assistant basketball coach Chris Capco. He's a Florida guy. I'm talking high school state champion. He spent time at Florida under Billy Donovan and at South Florida where he was a team captain. Then he moved on to coaching. He coached at Stetson in Florida and Georgia Southern, which we'll give him credit for since it's down near the Georgia-Florida border. But now he's come across the country and found a home in Southern California on the bench beside Andy Enfield. Capco, Enfield, the rest of the coaching staff, they've got the Trojans off to a 12-3 start. They're sitting in second place in the Pac-12 standings halfway through the season despite returning only three players that played last season. Trojans have been playing well despite a lot of unique challenges this season. I mean, you're talking COVID-19. They lost a couple weeks in December when they had a player test positive. They had a game postponed last week due to a false positive, and then Stanford didn't want to make up the game, so you know USC had to come home without playing that last game that they were trying to get in the Bay Area. They also have already postponed a game this week. Oregon announced that they're pausing all team activities on Tuesday, so USC's game with them on Saturday has already been postponed. So USC's got some games to try to make up, fit into the schedule, so that's created some different challenges. They've been playing three games uh, in five day stretches they've been playing six games in 12 day stretches so finding ways to win though for the most part and they're in a good position for an NCAA tournament bid with that 12 and 3 mark they have a number 23 net ranking which is the metrics that the NCAA tournament committee will be using on selection Sunday when they pick teams you know USC's got one of the top defensive teams in the nation they hold teams to, to one of the top 10 lowest field goal percentages and when they shoot well when the Trojans shoot well they can pretty much beat anyone why is that well, they got a monster inside. 
Evan Mobley is a potential number one overall pick. You know, the seven footer is so smooth with everything he does. He can dribble the ball, he can step out and shoot three pointers, he can back down big men, he can shoot over them, he can do just about everything. He's been dominant on the defensive side. He's been in the top 10 in the nation and blocked shots as a freshman. He's also, you know, averaging 16.5 points at 8.6 rebounds to lead the Trojans. So he's been the guy in the middle for them, and then they've got to get their shooters going around him, and when they do that, they've been playing really well. They recently got Ethan Anderson back after he missed eight games with a back injury. You know He's come back, and they're trying to find a way to get him back in the mix. He had his best game on Saturday against Cal. The Trojans got a big win there to, to get back on the right track after they had their six-game win streak snap. And they'll, they'll get a shot at redemption for that loss they had last week against Oregon State because that's who they'll play on Thursday afternoon before the Trojans You know, wait until next Tuesday to play Stanford and then have a matchup with UCLA, their first matchup against the first-place Bruins. So that should be interesting next week and a half of action for the Trojans you know they, they put together a unique roster this season you know, they brought in Tajidi they brought in Isaiah White they brought in Chavez Goodwin grad transfers who didn't get the chance to visit USC just made you know made a commitment sight unseen because of the COVID and you know the the recruiting restrictions they also got a transfer from uh from Rice Drew Peterson who's come in and been ruled eligible and he's been played a big part for the Trojans does a little bit of everything at six foot eight can handle the ball can, can get rebounds for him a little bit of everything else so we've got some unique pieces on this roster so we talked to Chris Capco about how the coaches kind of built that this year's roster despite you know all the challenges caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, all the restrictions on recruiting and stuff. We also talk about the sacrifices the USC players and coaches are having to make just to be able to take the court, how the players and coaches are leaning on each other to deal with the situation from the isolation to the testing. And then we got to talk about the big man, Evan Mobley. He draws quite the lofty praise from Capco, including the player comp of a recent NBA champion. But first, I wanted to start with Chris and his coaching career as a young guy trying to find a path to success. Chris took a job at USC initially as a director of operations. He had been an assistant coach at Georgia Southern, but a new athletic director had fired the head coach, leaving Capco without a job for the second time in four years. Because he had built a relationship with Enfield starting when Enfield was an assistant at Florida State and Chris was at Stetson, Chris decided to take a leap of faith to come across the country to USC, which led to an assistant job at FIU and then finally back at USC as an assistant, where he's at now. Chris, thanks for joining us today to talk a little basketball and talk a little bit about yourself. Let's start first with just coming to Los Angeles in the first place. What went into that decision to come and be a director of ops, not be on the bench, not be on the road recruiting, but instead being kind of behind the scenes guy initially? For me at that point, I just needed a breath of fresh air. I'd been in the business now for four years and been fired twice. And uh, for me, it was, you know, you're coming in with somebody who had a fresh start and that was important to me. And, you know, so that was the biggest thing. Learn from somebody new, learn from a bunch of different people, you know, and just get a fresh start. And, uh, you know, obviously coach had done a good job. So, you know, felt like he had kind of a plan in place to be successful at USC and then just be a part of that, to be honest with you and learn from him and things like that. And I didn't know if it ever take me as an assistant coach, but where I was at in my point, my part of appointing my career was just, uh, I needed a breath of fresh air and come in with somebody, you know, who I trusted and I believed in and felt like we could get this thing going in the right situation and let my, you know, whatever came about it, you know, take its course. But, you know, when you're getting into the business, people talk about getting fired and you just kind of brush it off until you actually go through it and you see how real it is. And I think I think people don't realize that that portion of it, you know, the fans talk about you got to get rid of this head coach, you got to get rid of this position coach. 
you know, they don't, they don't think about the the families and everything else that goes along with it. If a head coach goes, you know, all the assistant staff and everything, it's always an interesting dynamic that fans kind of just, you know, forget about. Yep. Yep. And then when you're uh, an assistant coach at a low major division one school, you haven't stacked away enough money to kind of live off it. So now you're really <laughs> jobless. You got to find something pretty fast because you got to make it meet. You know, luckily I didn't have, wife kids mortgage that relied upon me being employed um that really the stress was that much but you know the same token man you're trying to build a career you're trying to get things going and um you know that stuff comes at you fast but it's the reality of the business and it's probably best i learned that you know at that point and you see how serious it is and you know winning games and the reality of building a program who you want to build your program around you know the people you want to have in your program so there's valuable lessons that come from it um, I just happened to get my dose of reality about that stuff really, really early in my in my career. Tell me about the dynamic between the coaches that are on the USC staff now. If fans aren't paying attention during a timeout or something, you don't notice that you know it might be a different person that's talking to the team each timeout. What's kind of the dynamic? What's kind of the in-game responsibilities maybe for each of you guys as as you're going through a game? Yeah, you know, one of the things I would say that makes us, I think that really helps our, our program is Andy gives everyone equal footing within the program. So, you know, we all have a third of the scouts. So every third scout, either mine or Jason's or Eric's, and then we're all involved in the game planning of it, right? So we all know what's going on. And then we all have a voice into what may be going on. I don't necessarily do defense. Uh, Jason doesn't necessarily do offense or Eric doesn't necessarily do either one. Um, maybe say Eric works more with the bigs, but I can go over there and talk to the bigs if I need to. You know what I mean? So we all have a, an equal voice in that and uh just assisting andy and andy gives us all a voice so that's credit to him that we're all allowed to speak up and you know let our voices be heard he empowers us within our program and in front of the players you know to be coaches and, and you know do that stuff so i wouldn't say i have one focus you know but just kind of trying to help out where i can he, obviously the, the coach who has that specific scout is a little more engaged in what's going on not that the other two aren't engaged but probably have a, a louder voice at that point because they're a little more in depth with what's going on but we all have you know an equal right to say everything and you know for whatever's going on if we feel we need to say something offensively or defensively we're more than welcome to do that and and i think that's what it is and so i think the players respect that they see that we're all kind of involved in it together and i think it resonates throughout our program what has coaching been like this season i mean with the pandemic and you know, not being able to, you know, have as much time early. Obviously, you guys were, you know, practicing on tennis courts initially, you know, having to wear gloves and everything. What has it just been like coaching during this season with, with so many different uh, challenges that are just unique for this individual season? Yeah, this year has been tough, man. I mean, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's been tough for everybody, so I don't want to make it just seem like for us. But, you know, even going back to building your team, we didn't have visits, and I feel like a lot of the time, you know, you bring kids on visits, you can get a really good feel for who a kid is, how they interact with your team, really what type of person it is. Because when they're on the phone, everyone sounds like a really good kid, right? But sometimes you can kind of pick up on certain things when you really get to see these kids and know them and, and, and have them on your campus. So we had to, you know, really dig in and do our research in terms of building a team because we had a lot of moving parts and things like that. So we had to make sure that we brought our kind of kids into the program without really getting to know them. You know what I mean? And and vice versa for the kids, to be honest with you. They all took a leap of faith on us without having seen L.A., some of them without seeing campus and without really getting to know us either. And like I said, you can build a relationship on the phone, but I think there's a certain extent that you can get to. You know, the next part of it is really kind of seeing them in person and seeing how they interact. 
so you know get to that point and then we didn't have you know usually you start your 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 work in the summer in terms of your body your individual work start implementing what you do we didn't have that at all take that a step further for the kids in california a lot of them didn't have gyms didn't have access to things you know getting a gym and getting gym access is really hard to you could find i think those kids have enough resources where they could find certain times and certain days where they could go play pickup but in terms of like daily just kind of work on your game aspect of it all that goes on in the summer i think that went without so i think our kids specifically in california probably were you know a lot more to overcome than some of these kids across the country where things were a little more open so you know we, we had a late start with everything we started off on tennis courts we were able to start doing individual workouts and then you know, luckily, when we did get together, I think it was October at this point, we had enough practice time. We had a solid six or seven weeks to practice and, and put in everything that we needed to put in. You know what I mean? So I think when we got to that point, we did have enough. Our guys have done a really good job where we haven't had it. We've had one shutdown. If we would have had three or four and been without guys here and there, I think that would have been tougher. But once we've gotten together, we've really basically been together. You know what I mean? I think the shutdown was really tough, though. When you, you get into the middle of your season, you go 14 days without. We had one contact practice leading up into Santa Clara, and that's tough. So any team who goes through a shutdown, I feel their pain because your rhythm as a team is completely thrown off, and, you know, you're basically starting from scratch. You know, other than that, you know, like what we went through with Stanford the other day where you're getting ready to play, and the next thing you know, you're not playing. Um, I think our stretch we had here this past two weeks was really tough. Really proud of our guys. Just to have you play Arizona on a Thursday, Arizona State on a Saturday, you come back, play Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you're not practicing at all. And then you go back on the road, you play Tuesday again, it's supposed to play Thursday and Saturday. Six games in 12 days is a lot. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you would never do that in any other seasons. It's somewhat unprecedented. Um, but, you know, other schools are doing it too. So we've tried to harp in on no excuses for our guys. And they've all bought into that. There hasn't been any anything that we've, you know, thrown at them. You know, they've always done. We were on the road the other day playing uh, Oregon State. We got to get up at 7 a.m. to test. For an adult, that's not that bad. But for most college kids, you're not up at 7 a.m. <laughs> so that's an extra kind of wrench in your system or in your daily routine that just doesn't normally happen. So little things like that, when you test every day, coming in, doing that stuff, wondering whether you're going to, you know, practice or things. At USC, you know, generally these guys have access to a gym all day. Well, now, we test in the morning. They can't come in and even get work on their game until our results come back. And that's usually right before practice around 12 or 1 and, and things like that. So there's different obstacles that you go through that you're not used to. Some of the anxiety that comes with COVID-19, do I have it? Or, you know, the first little sniffle of a cold, or of a cold that comes up, wanting, do I have that? Or, you know, so all these different things that just goes into it. And it's exhausting at times. But I think everyone would agree it beats the alternative of not playing at all. Yeah. You know? I mean, you guys come through this road trip, and obviously, you know, Andy after the the Cal game was talking about he was kind of upset about not being able to get that Stanford game in because of you know the the false positive test where he felt you know pretty pretty much that it was a hundred percent that it was going to be a false test just because of how many tests you guys had taken leading up to that that and not just being able to not being able to get that rapid test uh, result back to be able to get that game in. He was kind of frustrated by it. You know, how do you kind of you know deal with the frustrations, the anxieties as a coach for yourself, but also for the players? You know, trying to be there for them uh, when again you're just you're not able to have the same type of contact that maybe you would uh, during a regular season. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you just try to stay in touch with your guys all the time, man, and, you know, mentally check on them, make sure they're doing all right. You know, the other thing is you go on the road and you're just in your room the whole time when they're here. I mean, we've had one guy, or we've had one shutdown, I should say, you know, so it shows you how responsible our guys have been. And what that means, skipping out on social opportunities, staying in your room a lot, staying home a lot, not interacting with people a lot. You know, I'm being honest with you, I'm tired of it. Um, <laughs> I'm an adult and I'm going to do what I have to do and I'm going to be responsible about it. But I stay at home with my wife. We don't interact with people. You know, we don't see people. I'm tired of that. So I can only imagine what a kid's going through with that and the, the sacrifice they've made to make sure that you know, we don't have multiple shutdowns and that they're accessible for the year and they're there. And, and you know, so all that comes into it. And, and, you know, you talk about the game and, and everything. You already have the challenges that kids go through with playing time throughout the year. So I think what we've done a good job is just checking in with them mentally. I think our staff does a really good job of that in general. So I don't think it's necessarily changed for us, but we just, you know, really trying to be conscious of what these kids are going through and staying on top of them and, you know, letting them know how proud we are of them and, and things like that. We've got a good group of kids, man. They've responded in a way that, you know, we expect because we do have the right group of kids, but, man, we've been really proud about how they responded to all the challenges and loops and everything that's been thrown at them this year. Yeah, when you're putting together a roster, especially this year, you guys are revamping once again. You only got a couple of guys coming back. And like you said, you're you're not getting a chance to you know sit down with these guys. You're not getting a chance for them to come on campus. Uh, I know when you're recruiting, a lot of times you're you want to talk to people outside, not just the basketball coach, but talk to their teachers or you know a friend, the, the neighbor, or whoever it may be, to get a true sense of the players. How has this roster come together? You know, I, I think the construction of the roster. I've been really impressed with what you guys have done. You know, just the pieces that have, the way they fit together. Was it all designed this way, or is it just kind of a little bit of luck as well that personalities and as well as the skill sets have fit together so well this season? Yeah, I think anytime you build a, a good team, you get a little bit of luck, right? I mean, we all you recruit, you sign players because you think they can help you win, right? So I wouldn't say we had anyone here we didn't believe in and think could help mm-hmm. us. Um, so I don't think we got necessarily lucky on that. But then when they gel, and like I said, we, how we didn't get to really know them, the type of kids they are, and things like that, I think we got lucky to that extent. I mean, we really have team first, unselfish guys who are all about winning. And it starts from the top. You know, Evan is the brightest example of that. The guy could be dominant when he wants to. He could be selfish and no one would bat an eye. And he's the most unselfish dude on the roster. You know, and obviously we knew he was talented. Um, You know, and then some of the right guys were returning. We thought Ethan was ready for a jump. And unfortunately he's been, you know, had some injuries. And hopefully now we can get him going. We thought Isaiah was ready for a jump. We thought Max was ready for a jump. So some of the guys who were coming back, we liked as kids, and we thought we, they were ready to take a jump. And then we had to find some grad transfers, and they've all, you know, team first. They all came from pretty good programs, but team first guys who are all about winning, who have been about the right things. They've been examples um, on and off. And you're right, the pieces have probably fit even better than what we thought. But we all took them. We took them also thinking that they could help us and they could play roles or um, – you know, or, or or have a specific role on the team that could help us win. So I think you get a little bit lucky sometimes within how it gels, but we took them knowing that they could all be successful here and help us win games. Yeah, the, the transfers you guys have brought in, obviously you getting Drew Peterson, for him to be eligible, that's really helped as well. Uh, but just yeah. the, the fact that they've, you know, all bought into the roles that they have, which, you know, sometimes you think a grad transfer is going to want to come in and, you know, make his mark and get his minutes. Uh, but one of the interesting things you said to me in a previous conversation was that, 
when you take guys that are from you know a Utah Valley or you know a, a guy from Wofford that they're just they're great more grateful for that opportunity rather than maybe a bounce back guy from from a you know a Kentucky or a big name school. Um, they're they're grateful for that opportunity to play that Power Five conference basketball. How do those guys kind of fit in Taj and, and, and Isaiah White and Chavez? You know what have they brought to the team? Maybe a little bit different than maybe a, a Power Five transfer would. Yeah, so um, you know, and even Power Five, but high school kids too, man, who come in and are highly rated and you know been recruited by everybody, and there's a sense of entitlement that goes with it. You know, none of these guys have ever been in a situation where the travel's been top notch and where they're staying and what they're used to is, you know, right. Everyone should be grateful, but sometimes I think everyone just gets so blinded by you know some of the you know, like resources that they give when they travel and how they're living and things like that. that I think they forget that these are, are blessings, right? And it, it doesn't go like this everywhere where I think, you know, we brought in Chavez and Drew and Isaiah White and Taj and these guys, and they've jumped up a level. And even though they're talented, they're grateful to be here. And they've all come from, you know, programs where they've, they've played a really good role, but now they wanted something bigger. And it was, and everyone says they want to win, but not always do they mean it. Well, these kids said they wanted to win and they've been, dead serious about it i think that's why they chose usc is because they wanted to do something that was bigger than them and they've been doing that you know taj we had a unique perspective on taj and that we played them what was it two or three years ago mm-hmm. and they beat us and taj might have been the best guard on the floor so even though his numbers didn't necessarily add up last year you know we had a belief in taj that he could be good because we had seen it firsthand you know and then drew we just we thought drew could be a really good player honestly he ended up being better than what we even thought and then Chavez and Isaiah White have been veteran impacts. They bring a certain toughness and energy to our team. They're reliable in every sense and just grateful to be here and serious and dead serious about winning. You know, I, I can't understate that because, like I said, a lot of people will say they want to win until things don't go how they initially had planned for it to go, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can really see who's all about winning and who's not. Well, these guys have, you know, Chavez has come off the bench as a grad senior. Um, Isaiah White has started, but sometimes played 17 minutes, 16, 15 minutes a game, one or two shots. You know, Drew has at times played well, at times not, at times played more minutes, at times not, probably turns down shots. We got to tell him to shoot more. And the same with Taj. So these guys are trying to do the right things, trying to play in a certain way that, that helps our team win. None of them are the least bit selfish and all of them are dead serious about winning like they all said they were when, when we recruited. Just curious when you're, when you're recruiting, you know, how do you identify guys that that you know are going to fit well for for a team? Whether it's a guy like you know Evan Mobley, you love the skill set, you love all the talent, uh, but not everyone is like Evan Mobley. Not every five star, very few actually are that are as willing to pass the ball as he is, as willing to you know sacrifice you know his own points or his own numbers sometimes for his teammates. Um, how do you identify the the traits that you're looking for? Um, is there a certain set of things that, that you guys as a coaching staff have uh, have identified that you feel like are are the winning traits for you? Yeah, I mean, each case is like case by case, right? Mm-hmm. In the high school, to me, the five-star high school, the impact of those kids is really hit and miss. And a lot of times it's so overblown with, you know, having five stars. I think you're seeing the struggles Kentucky's going through this year and Duke. And, you know, it's not a guarantee that those kids are going to hit. You know, a lot of times those kids need time too. Um, and unfortunately people put or have such expectations for them that doesn't always work out like that. But you know, a lot of times those guys need time. We knew Evan was going to be special. There was no doubt about it. 
there's not two guys in the country better than him. I don't care what anyone says. He's that talented. And we knew that. There was no surprise to that. In terms of, you know, some of the other guys we brought in, we, we knew we probably needed some shooting, right? We were losing Jonah and Utomi. Taj was a career, I want to say, maybe his sophomore year, he shot 44-3. Last year took a little bit of a dip, but had proven that he can make shots, right? So we knew that was going to be a positive attribute for him. And so fast forward to this year, and he shot the ball well for us. You know, Drew is basically who he is, kind of this jack-of-all-trades who does a little bit of everything. Well, as a sophomore, Drew was 6'8". He averaged over five rebounds a game and over five assists per game, which to me, those kind of those statistics translate. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? When you kind of go from one level uh, down to up, it's always a wonder of how will he score uh, with the points per game, depending on how he plays, how will that translate? But generally, if you rebound and you can pass the ball, that stuff usually follows you. That's how you play. Or if you can make shots, Usually that stuff translates. So we, we felt pretty comfortable about what Drew did, what he brought to the table would translate to what we do. And the same with Taj in terms of their shooting ability, their playmaking ability, things like that. And then Isaiah Wyden, Chavez averaged 11 points and six assists. He played in the NCAA tournament, you know, played on a championship team. I'm sorry, 11.6 rebounds in 22 minutes. And, you know, we felt like that stuff would translate to us. Now we didn't know how many minutes he would play, but, you know, fast forward to this year and, when he's in there, he's pretty damn productive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything that we kind of thought these guys brought to the table, they really have Isaiah White, rebounder, average eight rebounds a game at Utah Valley. That's stuff that's translated. I don't think he gets as many rebounds because of the rebounding prowess we have on the court at any given time. But we saw his toughness. We saw his energy. We saw how hard he played. And that stuff has translated. And that's kind of what he's been for us. You know, we tried to attack shooting. We felt like we had no on the roster, and then we needed Ethan and, and Max and these guys to make a jump in terms of their shooting. But ultimately, we just wanted, you know, toughness. Toughness has been a big deal. Guys who wanted to buy in and were the right type of guys. And, and with Taj and Drew, we got the shooting we needed. With Isaiah White and Chavez, we got the energy and the toughness and activity we needed and re- additional rebounding. And again, just I know I probably sound redundant, but these guys have just come in there and done the same stuff we wanted and been serious about winning and have really done a really good job in their role at what their strengths are. None of them have done, we haven't asked any of them to do what they're not capable of doing, and all of them excelled at what their strengths really are. And then obviously when you add a guy like Evan Mobley, that's a kind of a game changer too. What is it about him that, that stands out to you? I mean, he has the full repertoire skill set um, as a seven-foot big man, can dribble the ball, can, can do just pretty much anything on the court. What stands out about his game to you? Yeah, I mean, just that. He can do anything. Every bit of seven foot can handle, can dribble. Can pass. I don't think people realize how good of a passer he is. If you just look at his stats, finish right hand, finish left hand, athletic, defends. You know, at times, the, the thing that people forget when you compare him against some of the best big men in the country is those guys are mostly seniors. You look at Luca Garza, he's a senior. His game right now is a little more refined, and he's more physically mature than Evan. So that's where people get to Evan. Sometimes they try to be physical with him. And at the end of the day, he's 220, 218, whatever he is. He's only 19 years old, 20 years old. You know what I mean? So that stuff will come. But in terms of a skill set just coming right in, there's never been anyone more skilled. I mean, he can do, you know, he can do everything. And I think for us, because he's such a good kid and so unselfish, that sometimes we have to implore him to be more aggressive and be dominant because he cares about getting other people involved, which is a credit to him. But sometimes we need him just to be Evan Mobley and be the number one pick and go out there and dominate guys. You know, and he's capable of doing that on both sides of the floor, to be honest with you. 
you know, we knew he was going to be special, man. Hardworking kid, has all the intangibles that you could want and has been incredible for us. So you grew up playing with against Amari Stoudemire a little bit. Um, how would you mm-hmm. compare, you know, the type of game and maybe even the mentality that a guy like that who was always about bringing energy and bringing, you know, attacking, it seemed like all the time. How, how do you yeah. kind of yeah. get a little piece of that for Evan Mobley? How do you get him to attack a little bit more, I guess? It's just imploring him to do it. You know, that's the one thing, like, even with Onyeka, like, uh, you know, Onyeka just kind of had, I don't even know how to say it. they were just different in terms of their mindset. But I think part of that is like none of those guys, Onyeka and Amari, Amari dominated off of like sheer power, athleticism, will, things like that. I bet if he could pass like Evan could have at 19 years old, might've taken away from his game a little bit, you know what I'm saying? Or handle the ball like him, you know, Evan's so talented, such a good passer and so such a good ball handler that sometimes we put him in these positions that allows the defense to play in a certain way. And now he's forced to pass it or things like that. Whereas he's not dominating off a of pure physical ability. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If, I mean, on Yekaway, 245, 250, Amari, when he was coming out of high school, I mean, he was the NBA rookie of the year, what would have been his freshman year of college was probably 240 as well. You know what I mean? If Evan was 240 right now, it'd be scary. You know what I mean? So I think some of it is that, right? Just in terms of the way they're built and they're a little bit different. Um, But Evan's more skilled than Amari was at the same age, and it's not even close. You know what I mean? So I just think they're two different types of player and then how you grow up kind of playing that way. You know, Mm -hmm. it'd be one thing if Evan didn't have the ball handling or the shooting and just grew up playing around the rim and and was 240 and always just stronger than everybody, then that's how you would play. You know, so I think some of it's just an adjustment for coming to Evan to play that way. Um, and then I think as he becomes more physical and his body matures and things like that, it's going to be scary. I think he can be a Hall of Famer, an all-star, a max type player. That's how good he's going to be. But a lot of it's going to be seen when he's 24, 25. His, you know, you look at Anthony Davis and his frame is hit that weight, whatever mm-hmm. weight that he kind of maxes out at, out at that he's comfortable playing at. He gets more repetition in terms of shooting the ball. Um, and things like that, but he's going to be a really special player. But I think in terms of where he's at now, they're just, they're all kind of different types of players just because of the way they are physically and how they've kind of come up playing the game. Is there a good comparison for him? Is Anthony Davis the comparison? That's one that some people have used. Yeah, I think so. I, I try to shy away from using certain comps because I think people think being those people is a lot easier than what it is. Mm. But I think with Evan, comparing him to Anthony Davis is, is, you know, very spot on. I think that's who he can be. I, I think his floor is so high that even if he never, you know, maybe reaches the potential everyone wants him to be, he's still going to be a starting NBA forward on a really good team and going to be a borderline all-star at his peak. Then, you know, depending how he develops and stuff like that, I think like the sky's the limit for him. It might be a couple of years before yeah. he's on a really good team because he's going to go, you know, one, two or three. So he's going to go to somebody with a bad record. He's going to have to transform a franchise potentially. Uh, one of the last things, you know, I asked this question to Andy after the Cal game, but how do you find that happy medium between a balanced scoring attack and maybe force feeding a guy like Evan and telling him, hey, he needs to be the guy that says, give me the ball and get out of the way? Yeah, that, that stuff will happen on its own, to be honest with you. I think that's how it's got to be. When you win big games, your best player's got to be good. Let's just be honest about it. And it's what it comes down to. When your best players generally don't play well, Hopefully the other people step up, but for the most part, you're not winning games. Mm-hmm. So it starts and goes with Evan, honestly. 
you know, what you've seen some teams do is just try to make, they've just sat in Evan's lap or double him and they're just going to make other people beat us. That's the time when the balanced scoring attack comes into play. And at some point someone does have to step up and make a shot, but Evan's got to touch the ball. And I don't think, look, if they didn't, they would kill Andy and they would kill us. Right. What are we thinking? Why wouldn't you? And I don't blame him. So it starts with Evan and ends with Evan. And I think based off now how the defense is playing him is how we find a balanced scoring attack. You know what I'm saying? Or mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you find someone who has a better matchup on the defensive end where maybe we can exploit that a little more. Um, or, and Evan's been in foul trouble. And so now we have to rely on someone. But if, mo- if number four is out there on the floor, number four has got to be used. And that's just what it is. And I think everybody knows that. You know, the other thing on some teams, you know, sometimes what teams can kind of run into is, hey, who's the best guy? Man, he's not better than me. You know, he shouldn't be taking this. He shouldn't be doing this. It's pretty, you know, I haven't been on too many teams where it's it's pretty decided who the best player is. Everyone knows it's Evan. Everyone knows how talented he is. Everybody sees it. And so there's really not a lot of fight in terms of making sure he gets the ball and things like that. You know what I mean? In turn, and, and, and how much more he should be shooting and stuff like that. I think we try to find balance, right? Because other guys, you've got to be engaged and involved. But I think everyone knows they got to play off of Evan because... He's our most talented player, and he's got to touch the ball. And for our offense to be good and for us to win games that we need to win, Evan's got to be good. And he makes it easy because he's such a willing passer and, you know, guys can pass him the ball and they know it's not a black hole, uh, you know, throwing the ball down the block or anything. Yeah. And last thing for you, you know, this is the the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast. So you got to tell me what's the craziest thing you've been a part of on the sidelines, either as a player or coach. What's what's your, your best, weirdest, craziest story that you've had? Man, unfortunately, I haven't been a part of anything crazy. But the one thing, kind of when you asked me that, that sticks out in my mind is when we got beat by Stanford on the Hail Mary, whatever it was, three years ago. And um, I'll never forget, because we were where our bench was at when Davis shot the ball. You know, we saw the whole trajectory of the shot, right? So we could see it was online. And I never forget standing sitting next to Mike Sweats, our ops guy, who I sit next to on the bench, and him saying, oh, no, out loud. You know, because we could all see that it was online. And, of course, he makes the shot. And, you know, maybe that was the game that kept us out of the tournament that year. Who knows? But, you know, when you asked me that, for whatever reason, that was the one that came to mind. I haven't been part of any crazy fights or any crazy exchanges or anything like that that comes to mind. When you ask about, you know, what comes to mind from being on the sideline, I'll, I'll never forget him saying, oh, no, when Dejan Davis launched <laughs> a 60-footer, um, you know, to beat us at the end of the game. Unfortunately, that's the one that comes to mind for me. What a crazy game that was. I mean, Jordan McLaughlin basically shoots a no-look reverse layup to, to give you the mm-hmm. lead, and then they inbound the ball. I think it was one or two dribbles, and Dejan pulls up for you know the 60-footer like you talked about. I was actually in the rafters of that game because that's where the press is at Stanford's uh, Maples Arena. Like you said, that one was a ridiculous shot and a ridiculous finish to that game. Uh, which has seemed to be the case. You guys have had a couple of buzzer beaters uh, throughout. It seems every year there's one or two you know, buzzer beaters, usually with Arizona State, but this year you guys were able to take care of business uh, on the road there. We'll see when, when the Sun Devils come to, to Galen Center. Yeah, usually the, the L.A. games, we've had one buzzer beater um, against Arizona State in L.A., but usually it's the one at Arizona State. I mean, we've – I said it to the staff, I said it to Andy, you know, why do we even play the rest of the game? We might as well get to the under four minute media timeout, put us up four and just start playing because that's what it looks like literally every year we're there. And if something happens at the end, it's just like, here we go again. 
and the funny thing was, is fast forward to the game, we were up four with three and a half left to go this year, coming out of the under four minute media timeout. And uh, luckily we pulled it out. Another thing we talked to our team about is we finished, we finished the game back out of first place that year. And there were so many, like we did last year, like last year we beat Oregon in that double overtime game. We ended up winning the league outright. The same thing that year, we finished the game out and we lose, you know, on a buzzer beater. And, And so it shows how, you know, then the margin of error is for winning the league outright and how those close games, you know, how they come down to dictate your season and things like that. You know, that game might have had a lot of implications. Maybe we get in the tournament with that game. Maybe we win the league because of that game. Who knows? But unfortunately, I always remember that one. <laughs> well, you guys got some closers this year with Taj and Drew and, and some of the guys. Uh, didn't get it done at Oregon State, but I, I expect that those guys will learn from that experience um, to, to be able to finish some games off. And you got a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of help from Stanford this weekend from, you know, beating UCLA in overtime to get you a little bit closer back up to second place in the Pac-12 standings. One and a half game back from UCLA, but do have two matchups with the Bruins still. So we'll see how the rest of the season plays out. But thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. Uh, Chris Capco, assistant coach for USC basketball. For my next segment, I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to ask some questions about USC basketball. Not something that's talked about a lot on the Peristyle podcast and our network. So wanted to give you guys a chance to see and didn't know how many questions we'd get, but overwhelmed by the amount of questions you guys have sent in. Thank you so much to, for participating. Jump right into it just because I want to get to them, get you guys out of here as quickly as we possibly can. PXPX Trojan on the PS. Why hasn't Coach Andy Enfield been able to find another elite point guard prospect? It's an interesting question. You know, they've, they've really done well with the big men, obviously, Onyeka Kongwu, the Mobley brothers, really helps having that Compton Magic kind of pipeline that they got there with Eric Mobley joining the, the coaching staff. I think one of the issues with the point guard um, prospects is that they've had guys that they thought were going to develop a little bit quicker than they did, guys like Elijah Weaver, and then a guy like Kyle Sturdivant they thought was going to be you know a one-two punch with he and Ethan Anderson could be elite guys together rather than having that you know that true five-star guy that maybe leave after a year or two, having those two guys together and they be three- or four-year guys, I thought that they really were, were um, excited about that prospect. Unfortunately, with Kyle Sturdivant's father passing away, he decided to transfer back closer to home. I think that's part of, of it there. You know, they basically only went one year where they really didn't have a point guard. You know, Derek Thornton just wasn't the five star guy that, you know, he was initially thought to be coming out of high school. Uh, turned the ball over a little bit too much for him. So they haven't really found that bridge since Jordan McLaughlin, but they got a lot of confidence in Ethan Anderson. So we'll see where, where they, where he goes in his career. I, I think he's going to be a four year guy for him and a guy that can be a good leader. He's already a captain as a sophomore. So we'll see how, how he progresses in his next couple of years. I think, you know, he's kind of been stunned a little bit by the back injury this year, but he, he came out and, you know, he's shooting the ball a lot better than he was last year so added another element to his game and I think he'll do that over the next couple years as well gate call asks who who's in your dunk contest between USC all-timers and who wins I mean I think the answer is pretty simple about who wins Harold Miner has to be the guy right he was just elite elite jumper baby Jordan you know he was out there winning uh, dunk contests in in college and stuff so I I think that he's the guy who's going to win it I think when you look at who who's in the contest 
I mean, you look at your high flyers, you look at your first round picks, you got you got your DeMar DeRozans, you, you got guys like OJ Mayo, but you you might throw in a guy like Chimezi Metu, uh just power dunks. Evan Mobley is not a guy that's gonna be in there. And Yeko Kongwu with the power dunks might be in there, but those guys never get rated very highly in the dunk contest. And a sleeper, you know, a couple sleepers actually from from recent times, because that's the guys I know a little bit better, saw them a little bit more. But I'm gonna go with Marcus Johnson. And Elijah Stewart. Both those guys had, had great hops and can come off. And I know there's a lot of guys that are a little bit before my time that, that are probably in that sleeper uh, category. But, you know, I'm thinking about the guys that are NBA guys. And the, the first one that comes to mind is obviously Harold Meyer to win the competition. Jay Rockney asks, do you think Evan Mobley can go number one? You know, it's a good question. I think if he does what he did against Cal and starts showing consistency where he can take over a game and he can be more aggressive, I think that's the question mark the NBA scouts have. The question about him has been, hey, is he is he tough enough? He's going to get stronger. Uh, does he have the work ethic? Yes, he definitely does that. And then, But some people question, does he love the game of basketball? And I think that's just a product of him being a quieter guy and being unselfish. I don't think that's it at all. You know, you see the work that he puts in. You see all the different skill sets he has. That doesn't come just naturally. So the athleticism comes naturally. Being seven foot comes. The ball handling, the ability to finish with both hands, the ability to shoot over guys, that all comes with work. And that, that's something that I think that is a question mark that's going to be answered more and more as the NBA draft goes along, especially if there's a draft combine. Um, the biggest thing is just him putting on a little bit of weight. Now, he's got some other guys that he's competing against, Jalen Suggs, you know, uh, Cade Cunningham. Those are guys that are going to be in the mix to go one, two, three as well. So it might be a little bit of team need because I think all those guys are really, really talented. So it's not like there's a giant drop off from one to the next. I think those three guys kind of established themselves as the top three. So we'll see where it goes from there as far as what a team is looking for, you know, who ends up with the number one pick and all. But I think Mobley has a chance, definitely. You know, I think his stock has risen more and more as he shows and can rise more and more as he shows he's going to be aggressive and is, is willing to attack. You know, he's doing a great job of setting his teammates up, but every once in a while he's got to be that guy to say, hey, give me the ball, get out of the way, I'm going to take over this game. So we'll see if that's something that he continues to show or if it was just one game against Cal. Naked Alien asks, with all the talent on the team the past few years, why do you feel we are always a bubble team with regards to the tournament? It seems to be there are a number of teams with lesser talent that do a lot more with a lot less. Is it culture, coaching, players, chemistry, the annual late season struggles, all the above? Thanks. It's a little bit of all of the above. I think you take a little bit of, of a sample from each one. I, I think that it, it, it starts with culture. It starts with building that culture. And one of the things when you have you turn over your roster year after year, like USC has done recently, is that it's harder to build that culture. Now, I think they did a great job. You know, like we talked about with Coach Capco, is that they've done a great job finding identifying the needs for this particular uh, team. But next year. What's it going to look like when Evan Mobley is gone? What's it going to look like when some of those seniors are gone? We'll see exactly how, if they can continue to build the culture. And I think that starts with having, being able to recruit a couple of three, four-year guys like an Ethan Anderson or a guy like Jordan McLaughlin, even that, you know, a little bit undersized for the NBA, so probably not leaving early. And But he becomes the guy that leads everyone. So I think it started with, with a guy like Jordan McLaughlin coming in, being that elite recruit. Um, and you saw that those four years, USC was at its best. And they've kind of built on it a little bit and a little bit. 
Uh, but I, I think that it, it comes with you know getting that consistency, and that's one of the big things. So consistency is big, obviously, in every sport. Um, but for USC, I think that's one of the things that they've got to strive to to get being more consistent. And I think the last two years they've really emphasized defense, and I think that's been their calling card, and they've really relied on that. And we'll see if that continues when you don't have Anyeka Kongwu or Evan Mobley in the middle. That might be a little bit different next year. Burtis asks, why is Isaiah White starting? Well, because he's a guy that brings energy. I, I think that he's a guy that, that brings something the rest of the, the starting lineup needs. He's a guy that moves without the ball. He nice through. He attacks the basket. He attacks the rim on, on offensive rebounds. You know, the offense can get stagnant at times, and I think he's a guy that helps you know alleviate that a lot. Now it'll be interesting now that Ethan Anderson's back as he continues to get you know in shape better and you know is is in the mix more. You know who comes out of the starting lineup if Ethan Anderson gets put back in there? Do you take one of the the lead guards out in Tajidi or Drew Peterson, or is it Isaiah White going back to the bench where he started the season when Ethan Anderson was healthy? So that'll be a question that we may see answered in the next next week or so. Cesan Trojan asks, "What do you think of Reese Dixon Waters and his future at SC?" I think he's got a bright future at USC. Um, you saw just the first game. He's not afraid to come in and shoot the ball. You know, it's very interesting him coming in early. This is something we didn't get to talk with Chris Capco, but I've talked about it with him in the past. Is that you know this gives him an opportunity to get in the system to learn things, but it's, they're not necessarily expecting him to contribute right away. You know, that he comes in halfway through the season as a freshman. You know, going through the protocols and everything, and immediately he has to sit out two weeks. You know, the, the team doesn't even get to practice. So. You know, he's got a lot of inbounds plays and all those things. Maybe you throw him in there for a second just to try to be a splash of offense if you're really struggling in a game or something. But he's a guy that's just going to be learning and developing this year because they don't know if that that high school season is going to happen. So they figured better development for him this year. And I think next year he's a guy that takes over a bigger role when you see maybe some of these seniors leave and decide to move forward with their professional careers. And you see Evan Mobley gone. Maybe Reese Dixon Waters is a guy that controls the ball a little bit more and as a, a scorer on the wing to gives you some different different things, some similar things to maybe what Drew Peterson does. It's just that he can attack. He can also set up teammates and stuff. I think he's gonna be he's gonna be a, a Trojan that you'll remember uh, down the road for ten or fifteen years for sure. Burn has asked a similar question. Do you think uh, Reese Waters will get any playing time? He sure likes like the real deal. And yes, like I said, I think he's the real deal. But again, I don't think this year is going to be uh, about getting him playing time more as it's going to be something for him to be a development year in practice. So practice is going to be really big for him. Burnus also asked about is Joshua Morgan not going to get any playing time? I think that he's the same same way. They expected this to be a development year for him, um, and you know he was able to get eligible because of the NCAA ruling. But you know they've thrown him in there a couple times, and he struggled a little bit with the speed, maybe of the Pac-12 game versus the Big West game. So it's an adjustment period for him. I think he's got to get stronger. You know he, he's a guy that's going to really you know need the weight room this offseason. and then he can be that seven footer in the middle of the the near seven footer in the middle of the defense for him to potentially carry on that lineage from Anyeka Kongwu and Evan Mo- uh, Evan Mobley. To to maybe being Joshua Morgan being the guy that protects the rim next year. Can they redshirt him as they're loaded at big? Everybody is technically redshirting this year, and everyone gets a free year eligibility, so no big deal. Casey Cosgrove asks, how would you rank this coach infield team versus others at USC? Which team do you consider to be the best of the bunch? Unfortunately, the best of the bunch is the one that didn't get to participate and that would be the DeAnthony Melton team. You know, him having to sit out. I thought if he was back, you know, there was a legit 
thought that they could be a Sweet 16 Elite 8 team just because he did so many different things. He's probably their best player that year, and unfortunately, you know, USC holds him out the entire season. He's not able to contribute. I think Benny Bowright was also injured that year, so that didn't help either. So that that team is the team you go, oh man, what could have been? Last year's team, I thought could do some damage in the tournament as well. Again, what could have been? You know, they were really had really come on at the end of the season, and kind of everybody was fitting their roles. This year's team, that's what I think is very unique about this year's team. The way they constructed the roster, everyone kind of knows their roles. The grad transfers they brought in bring a lot of energy. They play, you know, up tempo. You know, they're they're really wide open guys as far as Isaiah White and Chavez Goodwin. They're very talkative. They bring some leadership as well. So I think it's a, a unique roster with their superstar being a freshman, but the guys that are, are the the mouthpieces of the team are those those seniors that have come in and are able to talk to the younger guys there. So it's an interesting group there. CSUN has another question. says, who is your favorite USC player in your lifetime? Mine is Taj Gibson, Nick Young. The player that I've covered that I really enjoyed the most was probably Jordan McLaughlin, just seeing him, you know, the way he um, progressed in his career and the fact he was always available to the media. And, you know, he was a guy that led the team and took them from, you know, where they were under Kevin O'Neill to where they, you know, where the team is now, where the program is, was really fun to to watch and, and to be able to observe and, and cover him and to see him do really well, doing well with the Minnesota Timberwolves right now. My favorite USC player, I think, in my lifetime is is Cheryl Miller. I mean, She's the best of all time. How could she not be your favorite player of all time? If we're talking men's basketball, another favorite is Elijah Stewart just because he was a tremendous quote and you never knew what he was going to say. Uh, but I've only been around for about a decade, so don't have as many guys to pull from as some of you guys do. I know Bernice had said that theirs is Paul Westfall, and there's some other guys that are on this list definitely too. Love My Wine and Trojans asks, given the stability infield has brought to the program, why the struggle to recruit freshmen and be forced to bring in so many transfers? It's not like they all go pro early. Three of five starters are transfers in this year, especially an issue in the backcourt. You know, I don't think that it's a struggle to recruit freshmen. Look at the, the guys that they brought in the last couple of classes. You know, there's been some turnover with some of the guys they have brought in, and I think that they decided to go a little bit different route instead of relying on freshmen over and over with the turnover they've had. Let's bring in guys that have proven themselves already rather than relying on, you know, a guy that's going to be able to make that jump from high school to college. Let's find a guy who's going to be able to make the jump from mid-major to power five and I think that's where they're having success with it so I don't think it's a a bad strategy it's a different strategy some teams go and just try to get recruit freshmen straight up and that's when you you look at your Dukes and Kentuckys if you can get five stars over and over and over you can do really well but you can also have struggles we've seen Kentucky really struggle early in seasons look at this year with Kentucky and Duke and even North Carolina you know some teams where they don't have those you know, veteran presence to be able to kind of stabilize everything at times. So I think that's one of the things they made a conscious effort to kind of change their recruiting method. And I think it's working for the last two years. They brought in guys, and those guys have been uh, significant contributors and have been able to, to do some different things And while they're still developing some of those young guys that they have brought in. David Law asks, was the recruitment of Big O and the Mobley brothers, thanks to Dad Eric, a recruiting blip, or does Coach Andy Enfield have what it takes to keep recruiting at an elite level? Is Ethan Anderson a guy who can develop into a power five point guard? I'm just not seeing it so far. 
I would disagree with Ethan Anderson. I, I think that he's a guy that hey, he's a freshman last year and you know was able to play and you know he takes care of the ball. He's not turning the ball over a ton. I think he's going to continue to develop. And the way his teammates talk about him and the way that they talk about they're not surprised when he has a big game or anything last year, even as a true freshman, as the underrated guy coming in. Um, and the fact that he took over that point guard position when there were other highly rated, higher rated guys on the roster already. So I, I think that shows what he's capable of. Can Andy Enfield continue to recruit at a high elite level? I mean, you look back, you got Jordan McLaughlin, you got Benny Boatwright, Chimezi Metu, even Elijah Stewart. These are all top 100, top 125 guys that he brought in. Now they've missed on a couple of guys like Chuck O'Bannon and and um, Jaram Brooks, you know, who just didn't work out. But those were those were high level guys as well. Now it's identifying not only talented guys but guys that you think are going to fit in your program well. So it's that combination of getting the Jordan McLaughlin's, but also getting the Nick Rokosevich and having him work his way up to being a starter and being a guy that you rely on as a junior and a senior. Username already taken two. Said any ideas on reinventing the program when things return to normalcy next year? Would assume students would might be more likely to attend a game in person after the lockdown. Other than winning, anything the program to do to start getting more fans to the games? You know, I think it starts with selling the program a little bit better. And I think that, you know, bringing in Mike Bone and Brendan Sosna, they did a really good job at Cincinnati with making it a, fa- a friendly, fan-friendly environment at their, their home game. So I think that they've probably got some ideas of what they can do when the program is able to get fans back in the stands. So I'm curious to see what they're going to do there just because of the things that they did in the Cincinnati arena and were able to, to really bump up the attendance there. I think that they've got a great product. It's unfortunate that this year people just can't see Evan Mobley he is he's special he's 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 an elite talent um so just like Chris Capco talked about you know he thinks he's got Hall of Fame potential now he didn't say he's going to be in the Hall of Fame but he's got that type of potential so it'd be really fun for for USC fans to to be able to say yeah I was there to see him when he when he dunked on UCLA or whatever it may be so we'll see where it goes from from here what kind of changes they try to do you know I would love to see the student section on the sideline Rather than the baseline, you know, I just think that you just create more havoc there potentially. And, you know, I don't know, there's some different things you could potentially do, but, you know, they just got to keep building the program and building, you know, with solid teams. If you have top 25 teams over and over, then you're likely going to get more and more fans as it continues to grow. Sakalaka asks, does the current team makeup of a lot of transfers, grad transfers, I count six, he says, affect high school recruiting? As in, it may not show a lot of player development. Does it just wax and wane per class to fit the roster, or is that just the state of college basketball at the moment? It's a little bit of both as far as the state of college basketball. There's a lot of grad transfers. It's become a a very prevalent thing in the game for teams to go and grab a grad transfer or two, and players are looking to you know really shine in their senior year to get an opportunity to to do that. So I don't think it affects high school recruiting though, because you know especially if it's a grad transfer. Those guys are going to be gone the next year. So if you're a high school kid, you're not worried about you know that guy coming in. Now, are you worried about them recruiting over you at some point? That may be a little bit of concern. Um, the question with player development, again, I think if you look at the USC players that have stayed three or four years, you've seen growth and development. Now, the question is, can you get that from everyone and not have guys transfer out that you, you lose out on? Elijah Weaver is a guy that really had high expectations for, just never really took that you know that steady jump like some of the other players like Elijah Stewart or Benny Boatwright or Chemezi Metu did. So you know you got to be able to get that 1-12 one, one through 12 on your roster, and then that's when you're producing really talented teams over and over and over. Big Nick 21 asks, Ajagan, with three top 10 kids in the nation who are local SoCal kids in the 2022 class, do we get any of the three big recruits? 
Now, this is not just, you know, the top 10 because you're looking, you know, looking at the composite rankings right now. You got Amari Bailey at Sierra Canyon at number three. You got Dior Johnson at number five. You got Kajani Wright at number 11. You also had Sky Clark, who was a uh, SoCal kid who's now in Tennessee, but he wa- he's committed to Kentucky already, but he's at number 12. You got uh, Dylan Andrews is another really talented point guard up there. There's some really talented kids in this 2022 class, and I think it's very similar to last year's class where you need to make sure you get at least one of them. So they got Evan Mobley. But if you can get two of those guys, it changes everything. You know, Evan Mobley with Zaire Williams right now, or Evan Mobley with Josh Christopher, you know, you would have, you know, potentially a top 10 team if those guys come in and play along in the system really well. So those are the questions you're looking at. I know that Kajani Wright and and Dylan Andrews, teammates at Windward, you know, both USC has been on them high, you know, uh, has been hard on them the entire time in their recruitment. I haven't talked to Amari Bailey to talk to him or D.R. Johnson, but I know USC, especially with D.R. Johnson being a point guard, they're going to be going after both of those guys, their guards, they're going to be trying to, to fit them in, especially if you can bring one of those guys in to play alongside Ethan Anderson, and if they stay for a second year, then to take over maybe the point guard position from Ethan Anderson, I think you got a really good fit then for USC. Rocksteady asks, is it time to go back to Peterson and Edie running the offense instead of trying to warm up EA? being Ethan Anderson. No, I think I think Ethan Anderson's a guy that you got to get in the mix and you saw wh- how he controlled the offense in the second half of that Cal game. That's what you're looking for. You know, Edie and Peterson are going to be looking to score. Anderson's going to look to find everyone else and he's the guy that drives in the lane, can create contact, can hit his free throws and things. So I think that he's a guy that you need to get in the mix and you you know the whole team really trusts him. So I think they're going to try to do as much as they can to get him back in there. So we'll see how they kind of develop the minutes there. That's something I was kind of curious about I asked Andy Enfield about it after the Cal game he basically said hey if you're a guard whoever's playing well is the guy that's going to play at the end of the game and that's kind of what you saw with Ethan Anderson he was the guy that was kind of carrying the load down down the stretch in that game Bamf asks is this team built mentally and physically to make it to the Elite Eight or Final Four and or Championship that's hard to say you know I, I think that they have enough talent that they can make a run I don't think that they are a team that you would expect to be in the lead eight or final four championship. Maybe like that D'Anthony Melton team that I talked about. You know, I had some expectations that yeah, they could be up there at least a Sweet Sixteen was kind of my expectation if that team would have been able to play. This team, I think they can be a Sweet Sixteen or a lead eight team. I think they're fully capable of going on a run. It all depends on their shooting. They play enough defense. They've got an elite player in Evan Mobley, and if he continues to be aggressive, like I talked about, I think that they can take another step forward. Um, but they got to be able to hit shots around him because even if he, you know if he takes that step forward, teams will start to triple team if they, if they have to. And if no one makes any open shots, then it's not going to matter for USC. So they need their shooters. They need Noah Bauman, Max Agbapolo to get going and be able to consistently hit some outside shots when they're wide open. And that's what Evan Mobley is going to create. And unfortunately, Noah Bauman is a guy they really like as a shooter, but he he hasn't hit some of those shots this year. When you're like when you expect a, a, a true shooter just to be able to knock down when they're wide open. And Max Agbapolo is really struggle from outside but looked a lot better in that Cal game and we'll see if he can build on it going forward he's a guy that is unique and maybe the wild card of this team he could be the x factor coming off the bench and doing some of the different things that they use him for Um, so I'm curious to see where he goes he's a guy that it's about time and is is college career to see that next step of development and maybe we start to see a little bit of the signs against Cal maybe we'll see it they're starting to use him more and more towards late in the games as an on-ball defender which is something you never would have saw last year because he was getting blown by but he's he's picking up his game a little bit by a little bit we'll see if he continues to progress as the season goes on Seal Beach Sandy sent an email and asked 
Other than Evan Mobley, which Trojans, if any, do you think could find success in the NBA? I think Isaiah Mobley is going to be an NBA forward. He just does so many different things. He's still developing. I think people kind of forget about that. They go, oh, five-star, he's got to be able to play right now. And the fact that he went, you know, a season and maybe a quarter, a season and a third, and, you know, he was struggling some, I think he's going to be fine. Maybe he needs another year of college development. Maybe that's what, what he needs. But I think he eventually will be able to play in the NBA and have a, you know, a, a fruitful NBA career as well. I think Drew Peterson is an interesting guy. You know, if he can play enough on-ball defense, and especially with the length that he has and being a 6'8", if he can play uh, on-ball and he can knock down some open shots, then he can be an NBA guy as well. So those are the first two guys that come up, come to mind for me. And, you know, the, a lot of the other guys, Chavez Goodwin, the Isaiah White, a little bit too small, or just there's some things that maybe aren't NBA, but those guys are, prof- are professionals for sure. They can go overseas and will find, uh, you know, a lucrative contract somewhere else as well. On Twitter, party at 901 bar asks, going into the second half of conference play, do you see UCLA, Oregon, or Colorado as the biggest challenger to USC's shot at a Pac-12 title? Colorado does have the tiebreaker against USC right now. However, USC does have a chance to get that back. I think you got to say UCLA. I mean, they're a game and a half up in the standings right now. So USC does have a chance against them. They still play them twice. But the fact that they are a game and a half means you got to beat somebody you know, multiple times to, to be able to make that jump over them. So we'll see how things play out. The, the Bruins obviously have played a couple more games, so that gives them a little bit of an advantage there too. Um, I, I think that they're playing really well even without Chris Smith. So UCLA is probably the, the team that I would say the biggest challenger right now. Elu Ben. Says, do you see Anderson taking back his starting spot? That's a question we kind of answered already. And, you know, that's a, a one that I think will eventually happen, but I'm not sure who's going to be coming out of the lineup for him at that point. But we'll see how, how they kind of play it out. And I think they just have too much confidence in him. They, they have too much faith in Anderson being their, their captain and their starting point guard that he's going he's gonna to eventually work his way back in there. He also asked, at what point does Enfield give up on Agba Polo? Dude looks completely lost. I disagree. I, I don't think that they're going to give up on him. I think, like I said, they, they're using him in spots to try to take advantage of what he's doing well right now, and that's play defense, be a man on-ball defender. You know, He's doing a good job of, of that recently. They put him in late in games for some situations where he can be an on-ball defender, being an extra, using his length. Um, now, he's got to let, the game just needs to slow down for him, and that's going to take some playing time. You know, you can see at times when things speed up. He starts trying to dribble and the ball will pop up out of his hand or something on a fast break. You know, he's just trying to – things are going a little bit too fast for him. I think the talent is still there. He's still got to add some weight to, to be a complete player. But he's got to shoot a little bit better when he's wide open. And I think that, you know, if you can find spots to continue to put him in and, and get him minutes little by little, I think he's going to continue to improve. Our Milo on Twitter asks, might be a bit early, but how do you think the team will look next season? With the season being a freebie in terms of eligibility, do you see any of the current seniors opting to come back? It's going to be hard for me to see those guys. Maybe Taj Edey, um, but I, I think that those guys are probably they came to USC to to you know get their chance to go forward, and you know now they're going to be able they've they've been able to showcase themselves. Now they can move on to the professional ranks. I mean Isaiah White has a family at home, so I think he's probably a guy that's going to move on. Chavez Goodwin, you know th- those are guys that you want to come back. You hope they do um, to add to the mix just because of the the freebie opportunity. But they're going to be looking for for their best opportunities going forward. So you might see them move on. No no inside information on that one, but just I, that's kind of my feeling on it. We'll see where they go. So Chris McGinty on Twitter asked for, in my opinion, is the Pac-12 that bad nationally that they can't sniff the top twenty-five rankings? I think SC could be anybody. He says. Well, I I think that part of it is that 
the Pac-12 didn't beat anybody in the non-conference schedule. There was very few games, and it, you know, obviously the the Pac-12 started probably a little bit later than everybody. They didn't get the workouts in, especially in California. They didn't get the workouts in that other teams got in the summer, so they're a little slow. And some of those non-conference competitions, but also Arizona State has just bombed this year. They were a team that was ranked in the top 25. They were picked second in the league. And when one of your top teams bombs and everyone's kind of expecting them to do well and they don't, then it, it looks bad on the entire conference. So I, I think that's been something that, that has hurt the, the conference as a whole. But I think UCLA's really good. I think Oregon, both those teams have been ranked. I think Colorado and USC are right on the verge of being ranked. So um, you, those four teams at the top, are teams that I think can make runs in the tournament. And I think that the top 25 rankings don't matter that much. The fact that you know those four teams are ranked pretty good in the net rankings, much bigger, much more important uh, top 25 to be in. Nick and Todd kind of asked the same question on Twitter, and this is going to be our final one, but we'll take Todd's. Coach Infield has brought stability back to the USC Hoops program, consistent top half of the Pac-12. However, generally a bubble team. What will it take for the team to take the next step and start moving into the 4-5 seed range consistently? I think it starts with one is fundamentals, and that starts with, you know, being able to knock down free throws. Uh, that's something that they've struggled with. You know, sometimes it's one player, sometimes it's two player, but they've got to be able to shoot a, a better percentage as a team. They've got to be able to concentrate on the free throw line. That way you can put away opponents in games so they're not close games at the end where it can be a coin flip 50-50. Those, those uh, games kind of even out over the long run, being 50-50. But then also, if you're down in a game, you're able to come back because you can, you know, USC has been able to get to the free throw line with guys like Evan Mobler and Yekka Nkongwu. But if you make those free throws, then hey, you're you're be able to get back in games with the clock not moving. So I think that's a big one. But then consistency of play at the point guard position. That's something that USC hasn't had since Jordan McLaughlin left. So I think that they, they've been trying to find that. And I think Ethan Anderson is going to give them that. But they need to be able to find the next guy. You know, can, Who can they turn the ball over to after him uh, to where you're getting consistent play, you're running your offense, you're not turning the ball over too much. And, and then maybe if you get two point guards, you can finally go back to the Jordan McLaughlin and Julian Jacobs method where you're running two guys at the same time, the two-point guard, guard system that works so well for them early. And if you have two guys you really have have faith in handling the ball, then you feel confident in being able to you know pick up the pace a little bit and use your athleticism even more in the open court and get some easy baskets. That's something I think that they were confident they were going to be able to do last year with Kyle Sturdivant, Elijah Weaver, and Ethan Anderson going forward, but obviously two of those guys, two of those point guards transferred out, and so now they're left trying to find another guy to fill in that hole along with Ethan Anderson, but I think if they get two point guards that really trust handling the ball, that's something else that I think they could do, and you know when you get easy buckets, it helps so much just you don't have to you're not forced to run offense and do everything else you get a breakout throw down a dunk gets the crowd into it there's so many advantages to being able to get a like a leak out or just be able to to push the ball tempo uh off an, a defensive rebound that's something i'd really like to see a little bit more out of the program as well well guys thanks so much for listening thanks so much for the questions i wanted to close with a special segment though you know, a year ago this week, Los Angeles icon and legend Kobe Bryant died along with his daughter Gianna, Orange Coast College baseball coach John Altabelli, his wife and daughter, three other passengers, and the pilot in a helicopter crash in Calabasas. You know, Kobe Bryant, he entered the NBA straight out of high school, but he had a connection with USC. He attended various Trojan sporting events. He went to men's and women's basketball games, volleyball games. Sometimes Gianna was by his side. After his death last year, USC basketball wore Kobe Bryant's number eight. They wore fight on forever and on, on their warm-ups, and they saved two seats courtside with number 24 number two jerseys draped over them for Kobe and Gianna. 
Kobe's death is one of those where I think most sports fans will remember where they were when they heard the news. So to close out the show, I wanted to remember Kobe by bringing on a big Kobe Bryant fan and one of the first people I talked with after the news of the accident kind of spread. I was at a premium sports 7-on-7 showcase, and I remember seeing people react at different times as they heard the news. But one of those players that I was interviewing that day was USC quarterback signee Miller Moss, who joins us now. Miller, what do you remember about that day and learning of the news that Kobe Bryant had passed away? Yeah, I mean, kind of like you said and touched on, like it's that kind of it's one of those kind of events that you hear your parents talk about 9/11 and other things like that, where you you know exactly where you were when you heard the news. And that day, I just remember it felt odd, like driving down the freeway felt sad, like it was as if there was this undertaking that every single person in Los Angeles kind of felt based on because of Kobe's death. Um, And I'm one of those people who's not like very openly emotional or anything like that. And I remember I was coming from a training session to just kind of hang out at that premium event, like you had touched on. I went out to the premium event and like was able to talk to everyone in somewhat like normal way. And I just remember getting back in the car and just like completely falling apart. And it, I mean, yeah, like you said, it was it was just a, it was a hard day. It was something that, and I I didn't even know Kobe personally, so I can't imagine full like what it was like for the people that did. Um, but I think the effect that his death had really showed what a profound person he was and the impact that he was able to have not only as a player but as a person on the city. Yeah, can you describe? You know, I'm I'm a guy from Georgia that came out to California. You know, about a decade ago. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up with Kobe Bryant. Actually, was rooting against him. But can you describe uh-huh. what, what Kobe Bryant meant to you as an aspiring athlete growing up in Los Angeles, and, and you know, seeing the way the work he put in, and being a you know a Laker throughout his entire career? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was kind of the perfect storm, so to speak, to be a Kobe Bryant fan. I never saw Jordan play, so growing up in LA. Um, being a huge sports fan, obviously, as I'm still playing sports today. Um, Kobe Bryant, there was USC football and there were Los Angeles Lakers, and Los Angeles Lakers was Kobe Bryant. And I remember going to games with my mom and my uncle and my dad and just watching him get 10 every quarter until the, eventually he got 40, um, which tended to happen pretty often for those of you that, that watched a lot of Lakers games. But I think it goes beyond that in so many ways. He touched so many people in how he played the game and how he conducted himself. And he's like one of the very few people that I've really tried to model my my life after. Um, I think he taught us so much. I mean, obviously we saw with the model mentality, I think it's a pretty widely used phrase at this point, but the dedication and how well he spoke and how he was able to be so successful in not only basketball, but everything he did. Um, the kind of dad he was, the kind of professional he went on to be after basketball. He was just one of those guys that you felt like made everyone around them better. And I think you saw that in the impact that he left and that he continues to leave and how people really loved and cared about him. So um, he meant, he, he along with what he stood for meant so meant and continues to mean so much for me. But I watched the same Kobe video before Every game, I'm constantly trying to listen to interviews and, and just things that, that he spoke about, about his game and his preparation to kind of add to, to my mindset and my mentality just to make myself a better player in person. So he's without a doubt one of my personal heroes. And 
I try to kind of honor his memory and everything that I do, um, especially in terms of, of my sport, just because I feel like one of Kobe's biggest missions and what he kind of talked about was him breathing everything he had back into the next generations. I feel obligated in that way as someone who grew up looking, looking up to him so much. I feel obligated to, to kind of give it everything I have each and every day. So um, without a doubt, like I said, he had a, he had a tremendous impact on me and, and so many other kids. And I just try to kind of do right by his memory each and every day. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Miller. If anyone else wants to share what Kobe Bryant means to them, please leave a comment on the Peristyle thread for this podcast. Love to hear from you guys. That's going to wrap it up for the inaugural episode of the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast on the Peristyle podcast family. Thanks so much to USC assistant basketball coach Chris Capco and Miller Moss for joining us, and thank you guys so much for listening and sending in your USC Hoops questions. I'm Shotgun Spradley, and you've been listening to the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.